Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. So glad that you're here. Well, we're going to enter God's presence through song this morning. We're going to dive into God's word and worship through his word. We're also going to worship by partaking of communion. So as we sing this morning, I encourage you to be reminded every month we do this. And we want to remind ourselves of what God has done for us. He's, he came. He saved us. He's, uh, he's healed us. He's made us like his own. He's put his spirit in our heart. And we are his kids this morning, gathered around his throne to worship him in spirit and in truth and from the depths of our being this, this morning. So regardless of the type of week that you had, I encourage you, let's stand and worship our God. Um, Mike? Let praise be a weapon that silences the enemy. Let praise be a weapon that conquers all anxiety.
Good morning. If you guys grab your seat and grab your bulletin, we got a bunch of things going on. We uh, are going to celebrate, as you can see, communion this morning. And in a moment, the ushers are going to come forward as we continue in worship. We're going to continue giving. in our worship through giving now. So let's pray as the ushers come forward. God, you're amazing. Everything that we have comes from you. You, you provide everything we need and that much more. Lord, we want to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. That with our hearts laid open and laid bare, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would experience your power and presence, and that you would receive from us worship, which is due your name. May you receive these offerings. They're the first fruit of that which you've given to us. We want to give back to you, recognizing that you're the giver of everything. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, we taught you a new song. So to refresh your memory, we'll sing through the first verse and then have you join us. Remember those walls that we called sin and shame. They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But he came and he died and he rose. Those walls are rubble now. Remember those giants we called death and grave. They were like mountains that stood in our way. But he came and he died and he rose. Those giants are dead now. Sing that together. Remember those walls. Remember those walls that we called sin and shame. They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But he came and he died and he rose. Those walls are rubble now. Remember those giants we called death and grave. They were like mountains that stood in our way. But he came and he died and he rose. Those giants are dead now. This is our God. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God, this is what He does, He saves us. He bore the cross, beat the grave, that heaven and earth proclaim. This is our God, King Jesus. Remember that fear that took our breath away. So weak that we could barely pray, but he heard every word, every whisper. Now those altars in the wilderness tell the story of his faithfulness. Never once did he fail, and he never will. This is our God, this is who He is, 
will um, serve you, but uh, we're going to have some scriptures on the, uh, on the screen from Galatians chapter 4 that remind us of what God has done for us, that, he's, that God sent his son at the exact time, that he redeemed us, and that he's made us his children. We don't have to be afraid anymore, but we are his sons and his daughters in him. And so we come to this table knowing that God has completely paid the price for our sin. He's taken our sin. He's thrown it as far as the east is from the west. It is no longer us, ours. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us to help us live this life and to be just like Jesus as we continue to grow in him. And one day when he comes back to receive us, we'll be exactly like him. And so that's what we're celebrating this morning. So I encourage you to... Remember that. Do business with God if you need to this morning. This table is for those that have made Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior this morning. And so, ushers, I invite you forward and let's partake of communion this morning.
sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope, wasted Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was resting. Dash was redeemed, only beauty remained. My open heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance, and death was resting.
I'll stand before the Lord. In Luke's account of the Last Supper, it says, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this. And share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant. In my blood. As we hold up the bread and we hold up the cup. We realize that these are tokens, memorials. To remind us of the great love that was shown for us over 2,000 years ago. That Jesus gave his body in our place to pay the penalty for sin. His suffering and his death and his resurrection gives us the hope of eternal life. The blood was shed in order to be able to wash away the sin and and fulfill that judgment. But it's by His blood that we've been made clean. So let's hold up the bread. God, we thank You for this bread and all that it represents. Lord Jesus, we realize that because You gave Yourself in our place, we stand before a holy God, blameless, That, God, Father, when you see us, you see us sinless because of what Jesus did at the cross for us. And what you ask for in return is worship and to remember. So with this bread, we remember you. We honor you even now. In Jesus' name. Let's all take the bread together. Let's hold the cup up. Lord Jesus, we lift this cup up to you. We lift up this cup as a memorial, reminding us of the great love that was shown. That by your blood, we've been made healed. We've been made clean. We've been set free. And though our sins were red as scarlet, they've been made as white as wool. The promise in your word says that we have been cleansed now and forever. We thank You for this cup and all it reminds us of. And we look forward to that day when, Lord Jesus, soon and very soon You will call us to be with You. And once again, we'll gather around Your table. You'll lift Your glass along with ours. And we'll remember You. But till then, we remember You. We thank You for this cup. In Jesus' name. Let's all take the cup together. Thank You, Lord. You may be seated. As is our tradition, in a a way to be able to honor God and honor this special time of communion, 
the first Sunday of the month when we have Communion Sunday, we do a special offering. It's a benevolent offering, and it goes towards meeting people's needs. Some, some of it's used for ramps, medicine, insurance, rent, keeping utilities on, food, for our church and the, and the community abroad. So let me pray over that as the ushers come forward and take that up. Please give as the Lord puts on your heart. It is not a requirement. It is just a response for what God's done. God, we thank you for these resources. We thank you for the, the gift of love that you've given towards us. And Lord, may every dollar and every, every, everything that, that people give even now goes towards meeting people's needs. And I thank you, God, that there are so many people that are blessed to this fund where they come and, and they just declare their need and, and, and we can bless them because you've blessed us. We thank you and we praise you for the giving that you've given towards us, eternal life. May we continue to worship you. I'm 
Thank you, Lord, for being the place that we come to for truth. We pray right now you just would open our hearts up to just that. Open our hearts up to your truth, God. Help us to not uh, be people that would make excuses for sin. Help us to not be people, Lord, that would somehow be religious. Help us to be people that are followers of you, Jesus. Help us to be people that are open to hearing you tell us the truth to our face and then willing to respond and move and do. We just are pray, praise you this morning, God. Give you this morning. Do what you do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you find your place over to Acts chapter 25, as we continue our journey through Acts, we've got a few more weeks and then uh, we'll be celebrating Easter. Martin Luther once said this, Where the battle rages... There, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. Think about that. Where the battle rages, there, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. When we think about this idea of faithfulness that we're going to be talking about today, God provides opportunities for us to be able to, be a, to have a greater witness. Do you realize that Christians are a powerful tool in the hand of God? You are a powerful tool in the hand of God, and God has given you everything to be strong in the face of trials. Now, I know a lot of people that go through trials, and sometimes you just go, I can't do this. Well, the fact of the matter of being in the trial, first of all, says God says, yeah, you can do this. And you can do this, and I'm going to equip you for this, to be able to do this. We think about some, some of the biblical greats that were... Faced with trials. Now, how many of you would sign up to follow the trials of Daniel, who was thrown into the lion's den? Would you do that? His faithfulness got him a trip into a hole with a bunch of hungry lions. Yet he was faithful, and God proved himself to protect him within that. How about the three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How many would you sign up if, if somebody invited you over for a barbecue and said, you're the one? <laughs> Not so much. And, and so within this, we see their faithfulness. And, and it's interesting in the, in the comment for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who wouldn't bow a knee, said, well, even if you throw us in there, even if our God doesn't save us, we will still not bow a knee. That's powerful. And we know that when we read the account, as the king looked in there and he says, didn't we throw three guys in? Why do I count four? Who's the fourth? One like the Son of Man, Jesus. So we look at that faithfulness and we think about 
the fact that God calls us to be faithful. Now, the Christian life is going to be filled with risks, difficulties, hardships. And your faithfulness during trials is going to provoke opposition. We live in a culture that says, well, let's all just get along. And that's fine. We can be loving, but we can't be so loving and all get along for the sake of compromising our faith or compromising truth. And within this, we need to understand that God promises that even if in our faithfulness we provoke opposition, that God's still in charge. Last time I checked, God's still on the throne, isn't he? Absolutely he is. And the fact is that faith in God does not promise peace from conflict. Faith in God promises peace in the conflict. Not from it, but in it. Within this. And as a Christ follower today, you are given the privilege of influencing the world around you. Many people are going out and seeing a movie called Jesus Revolution. If you haven't seen it already, I encourage you to. It was the, the documentation of the Jesus People Movement and what ended up happening at what I would determine as the, the, the last great revival that we have seen in our time within this. And, and it was a group of people that were influenced by the Holy Spirit to be able to bring about change. And they really didn't care about what the world would think about them. They just lived out their faith publicly. Faithfulness, by definition, is an unfaltering loyalty that's repeated over and over and over again, regardless of the circumstance. That's faithfulness. Faithfulness is a steadfastness, regardless of what's going on around you. We struggle as a people in this world because when life gets hard, we want to quit. We want the easy out. One of the things that is important to understand is that faithfulness demonstrates a depth of relationship. It is very rare, and we have a number of, of couples in our church that have made 50, 60, 70 years of marriage. But it's not very common in, in these recent generations. Why? Because when life gets hard, people check out. They're unfaithful to their marriage vows. God calls us to be faithful. And here is the blessing. We can learn faithfulness from God because God is always faithful. Do you know that God never breaks off His relationship with you? And He doesn't change based off of circumstances. In fact, He's sovereign over the circumstances. And He has you. In Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God... He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His chesed love, loving kindness, to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. God is always faithful. God never lets you down. God keeps you. And within this, we can be faithful. I was thinking about this and I thought, how do I explain this? Faithfulness accepts the impossible and bears the intolerable. Faithfulness accepts the impossible and bears the intolerable. 
And God's got a plan for you regardless of the trials. Paul has been faithful in his journey. As we come to Acts 25, he has been through a lot, hasn't he? He has been through all kinds of different things. He's evangelized the lost. He's gone out and he's started churches. He's discipled many people. And for reward of his faithfulness, he's now in prison. Thank you very much, God. Why? Because God said, you're going to be my witness in Rome. I'm going to get you to Rome. And so Paul faithfully served. And for the last two years, Paul has been under house arrest. He went to Jerusalem to pay a vow. To be able to give the money that was collected in Macedonia to the churches. And then he was falsely accused in the temple, arrested by the mob and the centurion, and taken to Caesarea Maritima, and was held there under Felix for a couple of years. Felix just didn't want to hear it, and Felix lost his job. And a new governor named Festus is in charge. Felix procrastinated in making a decision concerning Paul, and so now he kind of left him in jail. Festus now has to deal with, with what Felix wouldn't do. And what happened was Paul's ministry had provoked some Jews. Two years later, they're still angry. They still want him dead. And we come to the scene. Meanwhile, as, as Festus is, is now this new governor, he's coming on scene and he takes this, this office. And to give you an idea of what Festus is walking into, he's got Paul in prison, but it's not just that. He had Felix, who was a poor leader. At the time, the crime was rampant in Judea. Villages were being robbed and set on fire. The government was weak and complicit in a lot of different uh, situations, not keeping the peace. Felix was put in to fix things. That's Felix coming into this, trying to figure out how to fix things. And as fair and determined as Felix was, or Festus was, to get things right, to give you an idea of how powerful the Jewish people were, he, had, he, he wouldn't be able to overcome them. It was strong. The trials would continue. There will be trials in your life and difficulties in your life that will last a really long time. But God's faithful. And He calls you to be faithful in that. And we need to remain faithful in our circumstances regardless of what's going on. Because during those times of trials, God is going to provide great opportunities to witness. We're going to journey through verses 1 through 22 of chapter 25. If you'll stand, we'll read through Scripture giving God's Word the honor it's due. As Luke narrates these accounts, says this in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 25. Festus then having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. And therefore he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute them. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea and on the next day he took a seat at the tribunal and 
and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they couldn't prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law or the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Well, then Festus had conferred with his counsel and he answered, You've appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And now, when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left in prison by Felix. Thank you very much. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them, that it's not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they assembled here, I didn't delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion. And about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Now, being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appeared, appealed uh, to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said. You shall hear him. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So one of the first things that we see in our text this morning is the fact that Paul is in this consistent uh, trial. It's been two years. He's been going on. And one of the things that, that we got to take note of is that your spiritual enemies are going to be relentless. They are going to be relentless because they want to stop you. These Jewish leaders that I believe to be demonically influenced were trying to destroy Paul. Why? Because if they destroy Paul, then they destroy the witness. If they take Paul out, then he is no longer an effective witness for the Lord. And he's been effective up until this point. So we need to kill him. We need to destroy him. Now, Festus, as I said, is taking over for Felix. And he arrived in the Roman capital of Caesarea. And he stayed there for three days, and then he went to Jerusalem. So to orient yourselves to this, this is Caesarea right down here. It's on the coast. We call this Caesarea Maritima. Jerusalem is right here, and this would have been about a 60-mile journey that was there. So Festus arrives in the capital. Caesarea was the Roman capital for the land of Judea. 
And so he would have arrived there, got three days, got oriented, and said, well, what's the right thing to do? Well, as the new governor of Judea, I need to go and speak to those that are the religious leaders of the religious government for the land of Judea, which is where? Jerusalem. So he will go this, this journey that is there. So he ends up going up to Jerusalem, and it wasn't abnormal for these governments to do so to be able to meet. The Roman Empire was an occupying force, and they allowed countries to be able to run themselves under their governess. So he would go meet with the state of fate, the, the, the head of state that was there, and challenging him. So while he's there, though, the Jewish leaders seek a favor. Why did they seek a favor? We want Paul. Now, two years is a long time to have a grudge, isn't it? So long. Have you ever met somebody that's had a grudge that long? It's not beneficial. Two years. Two years they want this guy. They want him dead. If you remember earlier, they wanted him dead before he left on his way out of Jerusalem, and Lysias got wind of it and put 470 soldiers around him to get him to Caesarea Maritima. And so he gets there, and imagine you're the new guy in town, you're the new governor, and you go into town, and the first thing that happens is you've got these Jewish leaders come up to you and say, hey, we want to talk to you. Will you do us a favor? You're the new leader. Let's see, if I do them a favor, that means that they're going to be indebted to me. Would that seem something that you would want to do? What's the favor? Tell me about this favor. Tell me about what, what's going on with this. Then what they were saying is, get Paul out of Caesarea Maritima and take him to Jerusalem. Why? So the original plan of ambushing him can happen. So when he's on his way back, we'll kill him within this. Now, I love the fact that God's in charge, isn't he? And here we have this ruler, Festus, who is there, and he answers and says, Paul's being kept in custody in Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. He's going to stay there. I'm not bringing him back. Now, before we start saying, well, Festus was really, you know, had, had, had Paul's best interest. No, he didn't. Festus didn't want to move this prisoner because it would take a lot. And he's new in town, and why would he want to go to Jerusalem and hold a court and hold a trial in a foreign place when he can do it in his own palace, under his own control, within this? He's not really aware of the plot or the extent of the hatred but he can say, well, no, we're going to do this. In fact, you can come into my court. So what does he do? I'm not going to lean into this favor, but I'm going to exert my authority over you within this. And so they're jockeying for position that's there. And he says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to stick around here for a little bit longer, find out what's going on, and then you can come back and we'll have this case in Caesarea Maritima. Now, it's an interesting thought because what was God's promise to Paul? You're going to go where? Rome. Caesarea Maritima to Jerusalem would be to go backwards. You're not going backwards. What was really moving Festus's heart? God. 
God is protecting His kids. Whatever trial, whatever difficulty, whatever thing they're going through, you can rest easy knowing that God's in charge. You can be faithful and remain faithful to the Word of God and what God has told you to do and trust the rest of God and say, God, you've got this. You told me this. I'm trusting in you. Now, all of this is going on and Paul is sitting in house arrest. He doesn't know what's happening, although I'm sure he has a pretty good idea. But what did God really want to do? God wanted to expand Paul's ability to testify. Because Herod Antipas and Bernice are going to show up a little bit later. And Paul's going to testify to them. The two leaders of the whole land of Judea, he would be able to do this. And so Paul is setting, or God is setting up for Paul a future witness, a future opportunity. You are where you are because God is giving you opportunity to be a witness. You will go where God wants you to go because God wants to give you the opportunity to witness, to be that witness, and to be faithful to that witness. But it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. In verses 6 through 12, we see how it does get hard because spiritual conflict provides a greater opportunity to witness. As I said earlier, life is not going to be easy. God did not promise you peace from conflict. He promised you peace through conflict within that. And these oppressive conditions are going to be an opportunity for Paul to witness as he interviews Paul in Caesarea Maritima. And so it starts with a whole conversation. After he didn't spend, in verses 6 and 7, after he didn't spend more than 8 to 10 days among them in Jerusalem, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took a seat on the, what we would call the Bema seat, or the tribunal, in order Paul to be brought. Now, he stayed eight to ten days that was down there, went down. You say, well, Jerusalem is south. What does he mean down? Whenever you talk about Jerusalem, you're either going up to Jerusalem or you're going down from Jerusalem. It sits at about 3,000 foot elevation. When we go to Israel next March, you're going to see that. In fact, I was there one November. We had snow um, in Jerusalem, which is super cool. But to be able to go down to the coast. So he would go down there and he would go back to the place, his palace that is there. We got some pictures for you to give you an idea within this. This is an artist's rendition of what the city of Caesarea Maritima or Maritime, Caesarea, Caesar's place, would have looked like. This is a man-made seaport that is there. You got the breakwater there and the ships would come in off the, off the sea you have the Hippodrome here. This would have been the totality of the whole city. You have a couple of temples that are here. And over here is the Promontory Palace. This would have been Festus's palace. This part is still standing. This part, well, not really standing, but there's a platform here. And this is terraced down to the ground, as you'll see in a moment. This is the Hippodrome Stadium. And this is the theater that we go to. It's still an operational theater where they have concerts and all kinds of different things within that. And so, can I have the next slide? So this is another side view that will give you an idea of how the city, how big that city was walled and the harbor that was all put together that was in here. The Hippodrome and, and uh, everything is on this side. All of this is all underground. This is, there's no harbor that is there. 
I think I have one more. Nope, I do. So in this, this part is all grounded. This is the upper court where we can walk today, and this is the hippodrome that is there. So you've got to imagine yourself. Paul is being held in prison, house arrest within this, and we see the courtyard where Paul is most likely to be at, and I think I have one more. There we go. This is another view. So you'll see in a moment, this, again, this area is all flattened. And the tide actually comes up and comes over this, over this side. But this, this is a beautiful, uh, would have been a beautiful palace. And so he would have had this great view that was here in the Hippodrome. This is the courtyard where Paul would have been in that is in there. So he shows up in these palaces that are there. And we can see the, the floor plan that Paul would have been in that place. And the center courtyard, and I can't remember, yet there it is. That's what I'm doing. So, this is what it looks like today. As you can see, this, this part of the palace was terraced and down and washed away. This is, this is what the courtyard looks like today, the Hippodrome. And is there one more with the pillars? There it is. So this would have been where the Bema seat would have been. And people would have surrounded him. And you can see the mosaics and the, and the tile that is all there. So when we think about Bible times, we think about things much, being much bigger than what they really are. It really isn't. It, it, it's rather small. Big, big city. Lots of people that are there. It's a little Rome that is there. And Paul, as the text says, is standing in the middle and his accusers would have been surrounding him. Hurling accusations. Now imagine you're Paul and you're in the middle of that courtyard and you've got all these people yelling at you and there's a guy, a new guy in town that is sitting there and he's judging you and he quite easily could go like this. You're done within this. What were the accusations? The same accusations that were made earlier. The personal one. Paul is a pest. He's a plague. He's infecting everything. He needs to be destroyed. A political one. He's the leader of the Nazarene sect. Or a religious one that, that he is teaching the Jews to hate God and he defiled the temple within that. And now you have this, this political leader, Festus is who's hearing this, and many, many witnesses. But note the text. It says he can't, they can't prove it. Have you ever been falsely accused? where people have said stuff about you that was not true. Out of this hatred and this, this, where they just want you destroyed. Paul was going through that. And, and it would be so easy just to say, you know what, I give up, I quit. But he doesn't. He holds firm. The world hates Christians. Understand that. If you are a Christ follower, the world system and the world hates you. We know this based on John chapter 15, verses 18 to 25. It says this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus speaking. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you no, out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, but they won't. But all of these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father. And if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. What is Jesus saying? If you're a Christ follower, they're going to hate you. Why? Because your lifestyle reveals sin in the world's lifestyle. You live differently and you should. But the problem is, is the world hates you and will persecute you and get you to a place where they will push in on you and say, stop being such a Christian. Be like us. Fit in. Compromise. Why? Because your lifestyle reflects poorly on their lifestyle because what it does is it reveals their sin. People are around you and they're cussing and they're swearing and they take the Lord's name in vain. And if you were to say, you know, I really don't appreciate that. God is my father. And, and challenge him on that. Try doing that in the world economy today. In, in all of this. And, and if you'd have to live under a rock not to recognize the fact that Christians are a persecuted class today. Everything else goes, but you can't have faith in God and faith in Christ. So what should you do? You should speak the truth when the opportunity comes up. Look at verse 8. While they were bringing these accusations, Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law, the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. In other words, he answers all the accusations very clearly. He says, I'm innocent. Of all of the things that you're accusing me, I am innocent within that. And declaring that innocence that is there. To be able to take that opportunity to speak that truth. Paul had always lived as a law-abiding citizen. In fact, he writes this to the church of Corinth later in 1 Corinthians 9.20. He says, To the Jew I became the Jews so that I might win the Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. When he came back to Jerusalem, he took the Nazarite vow and paid for four guys to get there. Did he have to? No. He did it because it was the right thing to do. As a Jew, he could. And he didn't compromise. He adhered to the Jewish laws when necessary. To the gent when the Gentiles were around, it wasn't a big deal. And so within this, Paul maintains his faithful witness. Why? Because he's witnessing to Festus. He's not witnessing necessarily to the Jews around him. They've already made up their mind. But he's witnessing to Festus. you imagine if Festus would come to faith? And later he's going to witness to Herod Agrippa. Can you imagine? But it's not about the person coming to faith. It's about the possibility of them coming to faith and speaking the truth and giving an answer and speaking up within that. And Paul doesn't let any opportunity to go away to speak the truth. Peter would write in his letter in 1 Peter three fourteen to 16 But even if you should suffer for the sake 
of righteousness, and you will, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify, literally set apart as holy, Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give you an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Don't give people a reason to slander you. They're going to find reason anyways. But if you live your life holy and blameless before, before these people, you can give a defense. And he stands before these guys and he says, I didn't do anything wrong. And the next thing you need to do is, is not only get, be ready to give an offense, but in verse 9, avoid the compromise. When you're being faithful for the Lord and witnessing for the Lord, avoid the compromise within that. Notice what happens in verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor... Asked Paul, he said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial for me on these charges? You say, well, Kerry, why is that a compromise? Because Jesus says you're going to Rome. Festus says, you know, let's, let's compromise. Let's just agree a little bit. You really can go, just go back to Jerusalem and let them deal with it. That's there. Festus wanted to negotiate Paul into a compromising position. As a Christ follower, do not compromise the gospel. Do not compromise the truth. Do not compromise on the calling that God has placed on your life. Don't compromise. Be faithful to what God has told you to do. God told Paul, you're going to Rome. Paul, keep going to Rome. Don't go backwards. Not even if this guy is trying to give you an out. Don't go backwards. Paul was a Roman citizen. He was standing before a Roman court. Going back to Jerusalem would mean what for him? Death. Death. But he was told to go forward, not backwards. He was to allow and use his Roman citizenship which God had foreordained in his birth. Understand that. Paul was born a Roman citizen. And God foreordained from his birth that the trajectory of his life would eventually be a witness in Rome. And God had used that. Paul understood it. And so Paul would use his heritage to fulfill the will of God. And he would stand firm. We need to stand firm on the promises of God and not compromise. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Be immovable. You have God's permission to be spiritually stubborn. (laughs) But that's the only kind of stubbornness that God allows you to have. And stay focused on God's calling. In verses 10 to 12, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. Where I ought to be tried, I've done no wrong to the Jews, to you as well. If I'm a wrongdoer, then kill me. If I've done wrong, go ahead. Was Paul afraid to die? No. But he wasn't stupid either. It wasn't like, okay, I've got a death wish. He needed to be a living witness in Rome. 
to be able to be in that place. And so his answer was a hard no. I'm not going back. I'm looking for the, the greater witness that you have for me, God. Ephesians six nineteen to 20 says, And pray on my behalf. This is Paul writing in this prison epistle. As he's, this is real time, so Ephesians is under his, his imprisonment. He says, And praying on my behalf in the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. We need to speak boldly, don't we? We need to stop being mealy-mouthed Christians and speak boldly the truth of God. And in 2 Timothy 4.17, Paul would say this in his letter to Timothy, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles may hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. What does he say? I need to be faithful. And he makes this allusion to Daniel who was also a faithful witness in an ungodly society. And he knew that he was innocent. I can tell you this, it's much easier to be faithful for the Lord when you know that you have a pure heart. When you are innocent before God within this. And so he makes his appeal to Caesar. Festus goes and meets with the council and says, okay, council members, we got a Roman citizen that's making his appeal to Caesar. And we've got these Jewish guys that want him back. What should we do? I've already told him, eh, I'm going to listen to you. To Caesar you appealed, Caesar you will go. It was law that a Roman citizen, if he was charged, but there was no evidence, that a Roman citizen could actually request an appearance before Caesar. This particular Caesar's name was Nero. Not a friend to Christians. But it was early on within this. And so he says, I want to go before Caesar and I want to be in this place. So what does he do? Well, he needs to remain this witness. Now, this is now for Felix to wrestle with. I'm sorry, Festus. I keep saying that. Festus. Now, when seven days had elapsed, King Agrippa, Bernice arrived in Caesarea, paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, and he rehearsed the whole account. So what ends up happening here? Well, the fact is that, that Festus still doesn't understand why this guy's being so faithful. And he doesn't understand Judaism. He really doesn't. He's like, what's with this guy? And what's with these Jews? And I don't get it. Well, Herod Agrippa II son of Herod Agrippa I, was the Jewish ruler over the, the empire. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great that killed the babies and trying to kill Jesus. And all, the, all that was there, Herod Agrippa II was in Rome learning until he came back and became the token king of the land. He married his sister, Julia Bernice, which is really weird. But he marries his... Uh, Bernice was the, the daughter of Agrippa, and the old Agrippa I. And so Herod Agrippa II comes and he gets the land and he, he's, he takes over Callias and 
through a sw- land swap, and, and he, he ends up with a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, I'll give you another idea, again, to orient. We, it's another place we go. So, Caesarea Maritima is here. Caesarea Philippi is up here. This is the Sea of Galilee that is here. Jerusalem is way south within this. We actually go up to Caesarea Philippi. It's called Banyas today. There's a total, in the Roman Empire, there was a total of five different Caesareas. It was just Caesar's city. Caesarea Philippi was Caesarea made by Philip the Tetrarch in order to be able to honor this, this Caesar that was there. Herod Agrippa II would later rename it Neronius. Why Neronius? For Nero. You've got to understand, in Near Eastern culture, everybody's sucking up to the one in charge. Wait a minute, does that happen today? Maybe a little. So Herod and Bernice, they show up, and Festus is there. Festus is like, I really don't know what to do. You're a Jew, and you're the king of the people. Let me tell you what, what's going on. And so Festus rehearses the whole thing before Herod to try to get his insight on this event. And he's looking to understand the Jews. He's looking to understand Paul. And mind you, Festus could have thrown the whole case out of court, couldn't he? There was no evidence. But God is sovereign. And God is working it out. And God says, Paul, you're staying under house arrest. And you're going to witness to Herod and Bernice, who has this long history of persecuting Christians who are the leaders of the Jews. So now he has the leader of the Jews and the leaders of the Romans in Judea that he gets to witness to within this. And they have to wrestle with this. The one thing that is super challenging in here, though, is what Festus says. If you look at verse 19, it says, But they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion. When you look at that word religion, in the original language in Greek, it says superstition. So now we have Festus is going, these guys are wrestling about this superstitious person named Jesus who supposedly rose from the dead. What do we do with this? Which gives us some great insight to how the world views religion as superstition. And he says to Herod, who was a Jew, I don't even get your religion, it's superstitious. It doesn't make sense to me. Why? Because a natural man can't discern spiritual things. He can't understand these things. Festus wants to give a fair trial. He doesn't want to see Paul railroaded. But in the same token, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. We need to remain faithful to the Word of God and understand that we are living in a world system that doesn't understand you, that doesn't understand faith, that views it as superstitious. Should that change our witness? Absolutely not. We should continue our witness that is there. Festus rehearses all of the things about Paul, has him in custody, that he appealed to Caesar, and in verse 22 it says, And then Agrippa said to Festus, Note, I would like to hear from the man myself. And the trial of Paul in Caesarea Maritima 
provided a greater opportunity to witness because now he gets to witness to Herod Agrippa II. And in the book of Acts, Paul's testimony, and we'll be in it next week, Paul's testimony and witness to Herod Agrippa is the longest testimony of all three testimonies that is given. The most in-depth where he lays it out. Why is it important to be able to lay it out in depth? Because now, Herod Agrippa will be held accountable. And now, Festus will be held accountable. And truth is established. It is not your job to convert somebody. That is the work of God. But it is your job to declare the truth. And remain faithful to that witness. And people will seek to hear from you your testimony if you're faithful to that truth. Christians are a powerful tool in the hands of God. Satan wants to silence you and cancel you. But he can't. Why? Because greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. Be faithful to your witness. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the faithfulness that you have been towards us, the the fact that you've given to us this great witness and testimony through Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that You are doing a work in our lives and these trials provide a greater opportunity to witness. And even though it is hard and it is difficult and we are challenged on every side, may we push forward and proclaim truth, your truth and your love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Yeah.
God, that's our prayer. May the name of Jesus be lifted up in our life and may the testimony be true because you're true. And may we stand firm in the calling that you've given to our life and every word that comes out of our mouth. Praise the name of Jesus and every action in our life make you smile. We thank you for our time and lead us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed day. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.